Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Another big week coming up. I've got lots of things to do. Um, little FYI, IFAST University is up and running, open for business. Go to ifastuniversity.com to get yourself signed up. We're doing our last free Q&A uh, this afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern time, I believe. So just put that on your on your calendar. And then let's dive right into today's Q&A. So um, I got a Q&A from Marcus about ankles. And Marcus says, I've seen your videos we use the foot manipulations to alter ankle and hip range of motion with great interest, but I'm a strength coach, so manipulation is off the table. I have a client with limited right ankle mobility and dorsiflexion. He also has limited hip external rotation on both sides, the left more than the right side, and a history of Achilles problems, but those are resolved after wearing a heel lift in his right shoe. Can you offer some strategy to help recapture this dorsiflexion? Okay, so we got a couple things that are in play here, especially with this, this history of wearing the heel lift. So let's talk a little bit about how this foot behaves first and foremost, and then we'll superimpose the strategies on top of this. So I do have my foot in hand and I do have a surface to put the foot on. Okay, <clears throat> so the simplified version of the foot, three rockers, heel rocker, ankle rocker, toe rocker, okay? Now, as I come down to the ground, the foot is in this supinated position. So I'm gonna modify this just a little bit to exaggerate it. And so we're gonna have tibial external rotation. We're gonna have a talus that's resting over the calcaneus as we come down to the, the ground, which is gonna help maintain this arch position. Now, here's, here's the little problem that you ran into. So they put this heel lift in, in your, your guy's shoe to try to take some tension off of the Achilles. In doing so, they kept him in this early propulsive phase of, of gait. And so what you didn't get is the normal tibial translation over top of the foot. So he had he had a uh, heel rocker, but he didn't have all this ankle rocker. So chances are what you didn't get is this normal mid propulsive foot. So what we should see is, is some tailor pronation in, in the closed chain version, if you will, which is going to allow that tibia to move over top of the foot. So if the arch is maintained, I, I won't be able to get the ankle rocker component of, of normal gait. And so what we're gonna have to do is sort of recreate this um, gradually. So we gotta think about graded load over this foot to recapture this. So here's something a little counterintuitive. What we might actually do is actually start him in a heels elevated position because that's where he's comfortable and then start to translate this tibia over top of the foot so we can start to recapture this normal subtalar motion that, that should occur. So we put him in heels elevated and then we slowly bring the tibia over, over the foot. So just think about something as simple as a heels elevated goblet squat, allowing the tibia to translate forward but keeping this posterior expansion and then the posterior foot loaded and allowing the tibia to translate. So we're gonna gradually expose the foot and the ankle to this load, which will allow this subtalar motion to occur. Now, a couple other things that you mentioned that probably needs to occur as well. You mentioned that he's, he's missing some hip external rotation on both sides, left more so than the right. So now what we got here is we have a left-sided issue that's going to influence the right-sided uh, constraint. So 
He's got anterior orientation of the pelvis on both sides. That's your hip ER measurement. He's left-sided more than right, so you know you got a left-sided leading, which means you've got a left side of the body that's trying to get ahead of the right side of the body. So left side's winning, and then the right side's putting the brakes on. So now he's plantar flexing on the right side to try to slow down his gait because the left side is propelling forward. So what we're probably gonna have to do is bring that left side back first. So now we're thinking about all the activities that we would use to create left posterior expansion. So we're talking about hip, hip shifting activities into the left side to help reorient the pelvis um, posteriorly and to create a left hip shift to recapture the ability to delay the left propulsive strategy. Now we don't have the demands on the right side that are gonna promote this plantar flexion. So think left side first, create the posterior expansion, and now we're gonna start to drive this right side stuff. So again, the goblet squat comes into play. The front foot elevated split, split squat will also allow the tibia to translate forward with a reduced load. So again, we don't wanna drive load over this right foot because the strategy is so strong right now that all he's gonna do is drive harder into plantar flexion and you're not going to be able to recapture the dorsiflexion that you're, that you're chasing. So what I would do, left side posterior expansion, left hip shift, anything that would increase left hip internal rotation to allow you to delay the left side and then start to bring the right side forward. But you're gonna to have to do it gradually. You're gonna to have to expose them to the ankle rocker, if you will, gradually with load. So again, rear foot uh, elevated activities to start allowing the tibia to translate over the foot. Front foot elevated where the foot is flat, start to drive the, the knee over the foot and then bring the foot down to the ground into what you would consider your normal split squat orientation. Once again, allowing that knee to translate over the ankle. And I think that you're gonna have a great outcome in that regard. But always remember that this is a two-sided issue uh, that you're dealing with. Bring the left side back and then take the right side forward. So I hope, uh, Marcus, that answers your question. I hope you guys have a great Monday, have a productive week, and let's get it off to a great start. Good morning, happy Tuesday. Um, yes, I have neuro coffee in hand as usual, and it is perfect. So I, I was on a mentorship call this morning with somebody in Italy. Um, I, got a, I got a question to this morning from a guy named Carmine, feeling very Italian. You get the Italian Batman today. So since I brought up Carmine's question, let's go ahead and dig right into the Q&A. So Carmine says, I have a client who experiences groin pain on the right side with hip flexion and internal rotation. He's an narrow ISA with good external rotation measures, but limited internal rotation on both sides and limited hip flexion on the right. He walks with his feet pointed outward. What position would this pelvis be in given these measures and what activities would you recommend to do or to avoid? And then he throws in a really good comment here where he says, could this be a lateral orientation of the pelvis in which he's using a posterior and anterior compressive strategy? Okay, Carmine, you are on it. So let's, let's reconstruct the pelvis first and then we'll have a great idea as to what type of an activity um, we're gonna select for this situation. So let me grab. All right, so, so Carmine says that he's got a narrow guy, so he's gonna be narrow. 
which means that he's going to be in a relatively inhaled position of the pelvis. So right away, this biases me towards external rotation, takes away internal rotation. So, so far, so good. Now, he says that he's maintaining bilateral external rotation on both sides, which means we probably don't have an anterior orientation of the pelvis. So TJ from Instagram, you asked a question on one of the videos um, from yesterday as to how to tell when you have the anterior orientation. So if that, it, that pelvis goes forward, I'm gonna lose my ERs. But this guy's maintaining his ERs rather nicely, okay? But then he throws in the curveball that he's missing some hip flexion on the right side, okay? And then I love your lateralized, uh, your uh, lateral orientation comment, Carmine, because that's what I think is going on. So if we look at the pelvis here, and if I shift him straight over to the right, What's going to happen here is I'm going to pick up some concentric orientation of the upper portion of the, the right adductor magnus. So the right adductor magnus, especially in this, this upper area, has a very strong ER element to it. So if I lateralize myself this way, so if I shift straight over to the right, I'm going to pick up concentric orientation there. So it helps me maintain my ER because it doesn't limit ER, but it's going to limit IR. And because the, the adductor magnus has a, a component of what we would consider traditional hip extension, um, it's also going to limit the, uh, the hip flexion on that side. So I think that, that while um, you're trying to get hip flexion internal rotation, you're going to get that compressive strategy on the front, and therefore that's going to be your client's uh, groin issue, if you will. So we want to think about taking somebody from this, this sort of right shifted over strategy to a left shifted over strategy. So th the reason that this occurs in the first place is you probably got somebody that is in a left late propulsive strategy. And so we want to try to try to flip-flop that Carmine. So here's what you're going to do. You're probably going to have to put them in a, in a sideline position, um, especially left sideline and drive right propulsive strategies if you're in a rehab mode. Once you get past that and you start to see the, the recapturing of normal hip uh, ranges of motion, normal pelvic orientations, and full excursion of, of your breathing strategies, then what I would probably do is take him into the gym and I would start with a shallow, shallow parallel stance um, cable chop to the left. So we're actually gonna try to recreate, uh, or we're gonna try to delay that propulsive strategy on the left and improve the propulsive strategy from the right. Um, there's a couple videos on Instagram that, that actually utilize that stance probably within the last few weeks. So, so look back on those and, and um, start to apply those. Sled drags to the left, definitely going to create the, the delay on the left and increase the right propulsive strategy. Staggered stance, high to low cable pressing then comes into play. Or I'm actually going to be pushing backwards on the left, pushing um, back and to the left with, with, the, with the right side. Half kneeling cable chop, left knee down, going high right to low left will also be on the table there. So those are your early gym strategies. Later on, now we can start to impose some more dynamics. Um, so this is where we're going to actually start to increase the load and, and increase the ability to manage this left propulsive strategy under load so we don't reinforce it so we can overcome it by maintaining the right propulsive strategy. So uh, the dumbbell loaded left sided split squat comes into play at that point. Uh, split stance, one arm kettlebell swings, um, allowing you to shift back and shift out. So you're, you're going to be learning to shift into this position and out of this position without it becoming the dominant strategy. Um, uh, left 
cross-body medicine ball throw. So again, dynamics, turning into that left side, using the right propulsive strategy to push me into the left side. Cross-connect step-ups become very, very powerful in this situation. Um, because of the, the way that you're gonna elevate the pelvis on the, on the cross-connect, um, we're gonna also reinforce this right propulsive strategy with the delay on the left. Um, then you're gonna move into some more progressive type things. So like A marches, A skips, um, lateral cutting drills. So whether this is an athlete or not, I would try to work those strategies into this because um, ultimately you want somebody to be able to control this dynamically. And so we, we all behave at different, different loads and speeds. And so you always wanna make sure that we're progressing these people um, to where they can manage these strategies in, in, in the higher dynamic um, uh, type of activities. So Carmine, I hope that gives you some strategy to work with and some understanding. I appreciate your question, TJ. I hope that was sufficient for you to answer your question from, from yesterday on Instagram. Um, have a great Tuesday. Uh, happy birthday to, to Brother Jim. It's his birthday. I'm not sure how old he is anymore, but uh, um, he might be 59. I'm not sure. Might be 59. Wow. How about that? Anyway, I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroConfi in hand and yes, it is perfect as usual. Today is Wednesday, so that means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means we have the 6 a.m. coaches uh, coffee and coaches conference call as we do on Thursday morning at 6 a.m. So please join us for that. IFSU up and running, ready to go. We had our last free Q&A. This week, I got a Q&A coming up on Monday for members only. So that's going to be kind of exciting. And then the content is going to start rolling out. So make sure you get signed up for that. Okay. So I got a cool question um, about, about some squatting comparisons that I think will be useful on many levels um, because we're going to talk a little bit about the overcoming and yielding actions that tends to be very, very confusing for some people. And, and so let's dig right into that. And so this comes from Sandy. So that's big S, small A, small N, big D, Sandy. So Sandy says, uh, I'm stuck trying to understand how a regular squat, inhale down to yield and exhale up to overcome, converts to a competition squat. So she's talking about uh, powerlifting, um, where you set the pelvic position for both yielding and overcoming at the top and hold until the lift is complete when inhaling at the start to get tight, counter-nutate the sacrum, which isn't ideal for overcoming at the bottom, how would you coach that at the pelvis? And she wants me to use the uh, pelvis to demonstrate, so that's gonna be kind of easy. But the thing that we need to understand here is that, so Sandy, your interpretation is, is actually not correct. So you don't, you don't have a, a clear understanding of, of what we're talking about with the, the yielding and overcoming, because you're looking at yielding as this overarching kind of uh, position thing where you're including the counter-nutation, the, the, the ilium, um, pelvic floor and guts, etc. in this. So what I want you to understand about yielding and overcoming is the yielding and overcoming actions are the distribution of, of the forces through the connective tissues. We don't wanna include the, the contractile element, the musculature in that because that's what's actually going to um, alter the rate at which the connective tissues are loaded, which determines whether we have a yielding or an overcoming strategy. So when I load 
connective tissues very, very quickly. They become very, very stiff and overcoming. When I, when I load them very, very slowly, they actually yield. And that's where we start to see the expansive capabilities, even with situations of concentric orientation of musculature. So a concentric yielding strategy is a concentric orientation. So a muscle that is, that is moving into a shorter position, but the connective tissues are allowing the expansion to occur at the same time. And that's how we distribute some of these, some of these forces. So right away, we have, we have a, a little misunderstanding that, that hopefully that explanation is going to help. Now, Let's compare two squats. So, so you mentioned the, like what we would consider a traditional, maybe like a body weight squat or something like that. So as we start at the top, we would be in a relatively inhaled, sort of a counter nutated position at the top. So we're gonna start bias towards an, an inhale as we move through this middle area of the, of the squat. So plus or minus 30 degrees of your sticking point. What we're gonna see is we're gonna see uh, a movement towards a more concentric orientation of pelvic diaphragm, internal rotation of the of the the hip joint, and nutation of the sacrum. To get below that level, we're going to have to re counter-nutate. So we're actually going to see more movement at the ilium in this case to achieve this deeper hip flexion position. To get into that depth, we have to have eccentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm to get there. Um, if we don't have that expansion downward, you're never going to get into that deep squat. Now, let's take this over to powerlifting. Under most circumstances, there are exceptions to the rule, but under most circumstances, when we're talking about a powerlifting style squat, we don't want um, as much eccentric orientation. In fact, we hardly want any at all. We want just enough to get competition depth and then get back up. So, so the powerlifting squat is all about staying as close to this maximum concentric orientation as possible. We're gonna use a compensatory breathing strategy throughout the entire lift. Because if you think about where you're gonna position the bar in a back squat, you're gonna to try to retract the scapula to a degree. That's gonna create upper, uh, upper back compression. So dorsal rostral is gonna be compressed. Upper dorsal rostral is gonna be compressed. Um, you're gonna engage the, the lower posterior rib cage musculature like lats and things like that. So we're gonna to try to compress that. You're gonna compress everything that you can across the backside of the pelvis to, to make a, a very, very stable structure. You're gonna use your final compensatory strategy in the lower part of the pelvis, where you're gonna drive the external rotation moment. You're gonna to try to compress this apex of the sacrum. So we want the minimum amount of eccentric orientation to allow us to get into that position because the minute that you release the concentric orientation to any significant degree, you are going to accelerate towards the ground under maximum loads, which is really not effective, especially in competition because you tend to not get your white lights under those circumstances. So again, so we're gonna actually limit this. So we don't wanna go past this, this concentric orientation. So your setup that you're talking about at the very beginning of the squat, yes, you're gonna, you're gonna charge your thorax with air and then you're gonna squeeze the bejesus out of it, cut it, cut it off at the throat with a vasalva, right? Because we don't wanna, we wanna create this incompressible body that we can stack a bunch of weight on top of. And I cannot release that at, at any significant degree during the lift, otherwise I am going to lose my position um, rather, rather readily, and again, I'm gonna miss my lift. So the breathing that you're talking about 
Um, in in the, the competition, squat is a compensatory strategy all day, every day. It's, it's concentric on concentric. And, and so we're not going to follow the normal mechanics that we would under a normal circumstance when we're talking about a regular, if you will, or a body weight squat, where we have this transition from expansion to compression to expansion again. The powerlifting squat is compression on compression on compression with the most minimum of eccentric orientation. That's why the box squat is so popular with powerlifters is because it does allow them to, to capture eccentric orientation at a depth Right? But it's the minimum allowed, and then they learn how to yield throughout the entire system. So all of their connective tissues are, are providing the yielding strategy to even get into position, which is why we tend to see connective tissue issues with a lot of powerlifters. We see a lot of bony changes with a lot of powerlifters over time because of the, the dramatic compressive strategies that, that they're utilizing. That affects blood flow to the joints, affects blood flow to the connective tissues, and, and you know we got a whole world of hurt um, in, in our futures if we if we don't uh, take care of ourselves. So I hope that clarifies a little bit of the yielding and overcoming strategy. You know if, we, if we're looking at at the the powerlifting style squat at the bottom, you're going to be as nutated as you can, but also compressed underneath. So I can't even create the position with my my pelvis model because you're going to probably bend the sacrum underneath you to a significant degree. Um, so, you know, from a health standpoint, from a powerlifting standpoint, it would behoove you to work on both styles of squat. One squat, obviously, for your maximum effort for competition purposes, and the other one to help you maintain some health and mobility. So again, I hope that, that helps you, Sandy. Uh, big S, small A, small N, big D. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great Wednesday. And then coaches call tomorrow and then it's chips and salsa day too. So I'll see you. It is Thursday. I have my neuro coffee in hand and mm, it is perfect. Dr. Mike made a great batch for me. It wasn't specifically for me, but I, I pretend it is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my other job too, not to get fired. So, Nikki, you don't control that. Mm -hmm. You don't control that. You, you can't control anyone else's behaviors or perceptions or intentions. So don't worry about that. Okay. Don't ever worry about that. Because that's not your fault, nor is it under your control. So don't worry about it. Okay. okay. You just do, you, you be you, you do you, right? To the best of your ability. You help people to the best of your ability, and then the chips fall where they may. You could be the nicest, sweetest person in the whole world. You could be the most effective coach in the whole world. And if somebody doesn't like the shirt that you have on today, they, maybe they hate the Golden Girls. And so then you set them off with, by wearing, I know. I was a big Maud fan too. Did you ever see Maud? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I used to watch Maud. That's how old I am. Um, but but point being is like literally it's like they may they might not like your hairstyle they may not like your shirt they again it could be anything and they don't even recognize it themselves but for some reason today nikki's not their favorite person i don't know how that would be possible but it is probably possible okay but that's not under your control mm -hmm. ever so don't worry about it well speaking of belief systems and i know we, we've talked about this before for sure um and we don't we don't really control someone else's belief system but you know we certainly do have the potential to influence it to a degree right. i mean what would be some of the ways that we would be able to more 
um, usefully influence that to where you know we can create some progress or what we would perceive as progress for them. So okay, so everybody's story is based on their perceptions, right? So nobody sees reality; they just see whatever their perceptions provide. And so, so what you need to do through through the the establishment of of some level of rapport is to find out what their story is. And so we do that through subjective and questioning and, and et cetera, right? So we get an idea of what their thought process is. And then you start there and then you work towards where you wanna take them. So, so they're at point A, you're at point B, you gotta close the gap. The best way to do that is to, is to take, move from their story to your story. Like, so see, people walk in with, with structural, reductionist kind of thought processes because that seems the most reasonable to most people. We have this other perspective that is much more broad in its influence. So you have to take them from there to there. And so the best way to do that is to demonstrate change. Hands down. People say, well, how do you get buying a client? Be successful, <laughs> right? So you find out, you know, is there a limitation that I can influence? If there is, influence it in a favorable way and get them to recognize it, okay? So I'll give you, give you for instance. So I had a CrossFit uh, competitor in yesterday, very high level, like top three in her age group, that good, right? Really good, really good. And couldn't turn to save her life. So I, I had to do like, you know, a bunch of rotation stuff that she could feel we did the interventions and then I had her do the retest. And right away, the big smile comes and she goes, okay, now I get it. Because while she's doing the intervention, she's going, nobody's ever done this stuff before. Why am I doing this? Right? She doesn't get it because she'd rather be lifting, you know, super heavy weights in an in a Olympic weightlifting snatch, right? Or, or running with a weight vest on, or, or, you know, that's what she's used to. She's not used to kinder, gentler. We shift everything in one direction. She's like all loosey-goosey for the first time in who knows how long, and she feels the difference in the turn. Now, she, now she's my friend, and now she wants to know what else she can do. Um, this is a condition that uh, basically it's genetic, uh, that reduce the size and total numbers of hemoglobins in the blood that would cause an anemia. Right. So she's uh, constantly very vigilant. And well, this can be good or bad depending on circumstances. So we try to get it into a more rested state. Okay. So um, her resting heart rate is now around 75 to 85 in the morning. So I figure if we can lower her resting heart rate, that would be a good indication of improving her recovery. So uh, we've been doing some low intensity aerobic protocols, but didn't see very much improvement in the resting heart rate. So my question is if it is even possible to lower her resting heart rate, or if the condition is a, a physiological constraint that is very difficult to overcome. Well, I, I think that, you know, this is, this is a little bit beyond my scope. I'm not a, a hematologist or anything like that. Is that hematology? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah I think. Not, not really my, my, my uh, forte, but, but I do understand the concept of constraints. And so, so if we have, a, we have a limiting factor, a physiological limiting factor, 
Um, if, if she doesn't, doesn't have a normal level of hemoglobin, then, then the amount of oxygen carrying capacity um, will be reduced, right? So it stands yeah. to reason, it stands to reason that the way that she produces energy is going to be biased towards a shorter term energy system, which, yeah, and as you already know, it already ramps up her, her um, behavior. One second, very important. Um, so everything's gonna follow suit, right? So, so, and again, it's like, you're, I don't think you're doing the wrong thing by, by seeking out those type of strategies, but I think we have to understand what the, what the limitation may be here, right? But I would also argue <clears throat> that maybe your intensity is not even low enough. So how low an intensity are you, are you training at? Um, it's basically 30 minutes on the bike or very, very low intensity. Um, so are you monitoring? Nasal, breathing? Na nasal breathing. Okay. Are you monitoring heart rate? During? Uh, not really, not really. Okay, okay. So here's what I would do. Yeah. And, and this is like a just to see. This is not like, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what the outcome's gonna be. Don't change a thing. Monitor her heart rate and see what, what she's performing at so you understand where she is starting. And then I would start to manipulate that. I would also consider the duration. I don't know if 30 minutes is, is long enough to even create an adaptation. So, so I think, that, like I said, I think you're, if, if it was me, I would probably be trying to follow the same suit that you are in regards to what you're chasing. But I think I would get a heart rate monitor because, so if you, if you follow some, some, some of the standard recommendations, so if you leave like, um, like uh, Biru's book on, um, on training where they, they sort of established the cardiac output development level at like 120 to 150 beats per minute, that might even be too high, especially from an intensity standpoint that she would be able to maintain at whatever level of oxygenation that she has available to her, right? So, so again, that, that, would be my, that would be my question is, is where is she, find out where she is, and then start to manipulate that and see if you can change it. But I would also start extending the durations as much as you can, because again, to, to make the, some of the changes that, that are, are promoted, um, I would think that, that you would need to do that. I don't think 30 minutes is gonna cut it. And I don't think it matters so much, um, you know, what activity you're using, um, but just involve as much muscle mass as you can, you know? So, you know, a bike might not be enough muscle mass. Uh, are you doing anything else to promote the, the reduction in, in her, her vigilance? You know, meditation, uh, things like that? Yeah, I, I actually suggested her with the meditation, but she didn't do it very consistently. So, so are you forcing her to do something she doesn't want to do? No, no. She, she wants to change it as well. 
Okay. So I gave her some suggestions, but she is like she, I I don't know. She's not really uh, do doing the meditation very consistently. Okay. Yeah. Well, so that could be part of an issue. Um, some of the some of the movement based practices that are that are kinder and gentler and calmer, you know, that skew towards like some of the simpler yoga stuff or Feldenkrais. Um, activities or it might be useful rather yeah okay so i think there's a lot of approaches that you can that you can add here but but again i think that you know you're up against a constraint and so you might have to use multiple avenues to try to address this but um a big one is self-regulation because i was reading uh a few days ago where like mitochondria was like extremely important for helping to regulate shape change at like the local level. So, I mean, that was kind of eye opening to me just to try and further include like aerobic based work and activities for some people who are now like coming off of rehab and trying to generate some gym stuff and just even like some of the recommendations that I might make. Right. So, I mean, this is going to be speculation, but say like they have compression in their posterior thorax and those muscles might now potentially have a decrease in mitochondria. And if I want to increase mitochondrial density in those areas to help improve that shape change, I mean, it, to me, it's almost like a a double-edged sword where, you know, now if I'm doing like more rowing or pulling based activities that might close off that area, but it might help facilitate further peripheral adaptation. So I'm just thinking on like how I might mitigate one consequence for the sake of another adaptation. Well, it's gonna come back to intensity of effort, right? Sure. Most likely. So, and, you know, one of the simplest ways to, to potentially measure, you know, how much effort you're using is whether you can breathe through the activity or not, right? So if I'm pulling and there's a, there's a pause where I, I'm using an exhalation-based strategy to pull, right? And this is one of those things that, that people do on the rower all the time, but you don't, you don't think about it. But as they're pulling, they do hold their breath, right? Yeah. They breathe hard in between in the recovery element, right? But as they're pulling, they're holding their breath. And so, again, the intensity is going to matter under those circumstances um, where you're trying to potentially reduce the concentric orientation. Right. But this is also an, another one of those circumstances where it may be a unilateral type of activity versus bilateral, right? So when, when we're talking about thoracic shape change versus cellular, right? Um, I can comp create compression on one side and get expansion on the other. So, so again, exercise selection might matter, intensity might matter, um, breathing strategy will matter. But, but I think that you hit on a really good point that we that we always need to consider is, you know, and, and you start reading about mitochondria and you say, well, mitochondria is really kind of good for everything, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you know, from from brain health to cellular regeneration to to shape change, and you think about shape change at all levels, from cellular level to macro. It's like, okay, you need to be aerobically fit, or if you're not, 
you're going to use more concentric orientation, which means you're going to use more short-term energy systems. Or you use more short-term energy systems, you're more concentric oriented and you can't move. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Big Q&A, in my opinion, today. Maybe the simplest of questions with the greatest of impact. So, you know, wake the dog, call the neighbors. This might be a pretty good one for you to, to pass on to some friends. Um, and unfortunately, it was one that I missed a while back. So I could have answered this a while back and, and uh, we could have had a greater impact probably on the world. So I apologize for that. This comes from Brian and this is way back from before this whole lockdown thing started. So. Uh, Brian asks us, how does one best test for a lack of hip extension? And then how would one train to improve hip extension? Seems like a very simple question for all you stretch and strengthen people. Obviously, you know to stretch the hip flexors and strengthen the glutes. Please don't do that. Please don't fall for that, that stuff. Um, so let's talk about this because the whole problem starts from a point of confusion as to what hip extension really is. And so if you're a structural reductionist person and you believe in the imaginary planes, then you're going to look at this as a sagittal plane problem and that is absolutely wrong. So what we need to recognize is that this is an internal rotation problem. So what hip extension really is, is the ability to internally rotate the hip as you pass your center of mass over the leg during gait or sprinting or during any other form of activity. Um, your inability to, to capture this internal rotation then results in a, a limitation of, of that joint excursion and then you have all sorts of compensatory strategies that get layered on top of that. And so that's step one is to recognize that this is an internal rotation problem. Okay, how do you test it? You can test it in any number of ways. Um, one, you can just look at your chessboard because the chessboard is going to tell you right away. So if I have a, a loss of, of total hip excursion, so the hip internal rotation combined is about 100 degrees. So if I have less than 100 degrees of hip ER and IR combined, you're probably going to have an internal rotation deficit, which means you're not going to have what would be termed hip extension. But you can test it in non-weight-bearing situations, like in sideline. You can do a standing load propulsion test, which is what I teach at the intensive, um, which is very, very useful. You can look at things in half kneeling and just kind of eyeball it. You can look at split stance and eyeball it. You can watch sprinting um, in, in slow-mo and, and you'll, you'll see the, the inability to extend the hips. So there's any number of ways that you can, you can identify this. I think you do what, what you're, you're most comfortable with. Um, the thing that I, I kind of talk people out of, or I try to, is, is the Thomas test. I don't think it's a very good test. I think it's very difficult to control. I don't think it provides a lot of information unless you've got somebody with a ton of anterior orientation where they have like maybe like a minus 30 of what would be traditional hip extension deficit. Because then you can kind of identify those things because it doesn't really matter whether you control the test very well or not, you're going to see this massive deficit. But anytime that, that there's something that's close or you get somebody that's biased towards an inhalation bias, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult test to, to take any useful information away. So I talk people out of that as much as I can. However, I would offer this, that if you are questioning whether you have hip extension or not, um, use a reach behind the back test. So the old Apley's scratch test will, will work in this situation. 
um, because if you can't do that with the upper extremity, chances are you're not going to be able to capture the internal rotation position that we're talking about in the lower extremity either. Okay, so now we've identified what it actually is. Now, how do you train to recapture the quote unquote hip extension? Um, and so what I would say is the first thing you got to understand is what position actually allows it to occur. And if you can understand that, then the rest is going to be kind of easy. So if we take our pelvis, and so we're talking about motion in this direction. So what we're actually doing is we're going to be internally rotating to allow the center of mass to pass over the leg. So that's the motion that's going to be occurring. So that's internal rotation. So under those circumstances, what I need to be able to do is I need to be able to IR the ilium and create an antiverted position of the acetabulum, which means I need to be able to nutate the sacrum. So those are the conditions that allow this to occur. And so all we have to do now is be able to identify what our starting conditions are, and then we move you towards the, that internally rotated ilium nutated position of the sacrum, concentric pelvic diaphragm, if you will. And that's going to allow us to recapture this internal rotation in the position as we pass the body over the, over the limb. So now we just invert the problem. So what do you not want to see happen? Well, I don't want any anterior orientations because that's gonna result in my loss of physiological range of hip rotations. Um, so if you have less than 100 degrees total motion in internal and external rotation, especially with the loss of external rotation under those circumstances, Chances are you're gonna have an anterior compressive strategy at the pubic tubercle, and you're never gonna get the hip extended um, under those circumstances. So you will not be able to capture the internal rotation at that zero degree mark, the imaginary zero degree mark, um, based on dead guy anatomy. If I have an inhalation bias where the external rotation is greater than 60 degrees, um, chances are you're going to have reduced internal rotation just because of the retroverted position of the acetabulum. And again, you will not be able to capture the quote-unquote hip extension. If your wide ISA posterior compression below the level of the trochanter, um, one, you're going to reduce hip flexion, reduce straight leg raise, and you're going to have reduced internal rotation at 90 degrees of hip flexion. And so once again, you're probably not going to be able to capture internal rotation. So if you understand your starting conditions, then it's just a matter of moving you progressively towards that position where you have an internally rotated ilium, the antiverted acetabulum, the nutated sacrum without compensatory strategies, and there you have your hip extension. So rather than trying to force things, rather than trying to blame weakness of a muscle, which is ridiculous because those are positional problems that result in a lack of force production, it's not a weakness of a muscle. Let's stop blaming muscles. Let's stop blaming length. And let's start looking at anterior, or let's start looking at orientation, and then the relative positions that we need to capture that internal rotation so we can we can step cleanly over that limb or we can sprint um, with, with this full capability, with this full excursion of the pelvis and full excursion of the hip joint. So Brian, again, apologies for not seeing this sooner. I hope this works for you, at least gets you started. If it doesn't, ask more questions. I appreciate you. Um, everybody have a terrific weekend. Have a great Friday and I'll see you next time.